It is Wednesday, December 27th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, listening again to some of our favorite conversations from the previous year, including experiences working in a zoo that led Roland Smith to his career as a rider. I started working at the Portland Zoo when I was 18 years old. I was just a kid, you know, trying to get money for college. Plus, creator of the Goosebumps series, R.L. Stein, discusses scary things, inspirations, and sneaking past his mother to read horror comics. I bought two copies of uh, Tales from the Crypt, and she stopped me at the door and she said, I'm sorry, you can't have these. You can't bring them in the house. They're trash. And Tricia Starks, a writer nominated for the 2023 Pushkin Prize. And so to be included in that for writing is, is exceedingly sweet. First, the news from NPR. When caring for a seriously ill loved one, the journey shouldn't be taken alone. Circle of Life Hospice can help. Services are covered by Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance. No one is turned away based on an inability to pay. 750-6632 or nwacircleoflife.com for more. The Ozark Society is a regional conservation organization known for saving the Buffalo National River from being dammed. Members across the state who love rivers and wild lands hike, volunteer, and work toward a common goal of keeping the natural state natural. Information on memberships at ozarksociety.net. This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, December 27th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. We're listening again this hour to some of our favorite conversations from our show from the past few months. We'll share again our conversation from this fall with R.L. Stein, the creator of the Goosebumps series. And in May, Daniel Carruth spoke with writer, historian, and University of Arkansas professor Tricia Starks. First up, before almost every interview, to get my audio level set, I asked three questions. What is your name? What title or identifier should I use in conjunction with the story I'm working on? Basic information. Then I almost always ask, what's the first movie you remember seeing in a movie theater? It's a nice little icebreaker. Sometimes, though, it turns out it's a great first real question for an interview. Like this year in Bentonville when I was interviewing author Roland Smith. What's the first movie you remember seeing in a movie theater? Um, uh, one of the first was um, The Day of the Triffids, which I wrote about in my most recent book. I saw it. You know, it came out in 51, but I saw it. After that scared me to death. He said, Day of the Triffids, an apocalyptic tale about an aggressive species of plant eradicating humankind. And as you heard, that movie, more than 60 years later, finds its way into his latest book. More about that in just a bit. Roland Smith has written dozens of books for young readers, mostly fiction, but some nonfiction and some picture books, too. If you know a young reader, chances are they know Roland Smith. His series include The Wilds, a family whose parents are scientists working to save endangered animals, the IQ Adventure series, and a set of novels about twins Grace and Marty who, along with their uncle, search for mysterious and legendary beasts like Chupacabra. His book, Elephant Run, is an adventure set in Burma during World War II with Asian elephants at the core of the story. He's also written standalone novels and the recently published nonfiction book, They Are Here, about invasive species. He writes so well about people interacting with animals in nature because he's lived that life. He worked at zoos and in the wild and has been a research biologist. He grew up in Portland but now lives in Bentonville. And this year he spoke at the Bentonville Public Library. 
Before his talk, I sat down with him and asked him about that book, They Are Here, about invasive species. When you're working with wildlife, you run into a lot of invasive species. And before we moved to Bentonville, we lived on a a good-sized farm, you know, and we had invasive species there as well. And so I've always been kind of fascinated with them. And a publisher called me up a couple years ago, and they said, will you you write a book on invasive species? And I said, a nonfiction book? They said, yeah. And I've written... 10 nonfiction books, but it's been years that since I've done it, I've written mostly novels since then, 30-something. And, uh, you know, they, I found out early in my career that I liked writing them, but they didn't sell very well. There's really a teeny market for that. You, it's an institutional market to schools, and the shelves in libraries don't have many nonfiction books. And more importantly, trade doesn't have a tremendous amount of nonfiction books for kids and they said will you just write a little one you know 64 pages and I said well if I'm going to write another nonfiction book I'm going to make it a big book or certainly bigger than 64 pages I don't want the standard this is a Burmese python this is a you know feral pig you know I mean I know all those things and I said there's like dozens of books like that that the kids check out to do their science report and so they get checked out once a year, and they pick their species, and they write about it. I said, I want to write a book that kids are get their science report, take it down, and start reading it with very low expectations, and find out that it's actually pretty entertaining because it's I'm in the book. So I write a lot about myself in the book, and it's sort of this sort of monologue about my career as a zoo guy and a research biologist and with humorous stories. And so I tried to make it kind of not sensational but entertaining. So in a way it's, I don't know if you're familiar with term, there's metafiction where the author puts themselves in. My, my book is meta nonfiction. And I love that book just because I've never been able to write about myself. I mean, there's obviously me and my character, me and some of my characters in my novels, but never directly like, this is Roland Smith and this is what happened to me. You were a writer that I wish when I was 9, 10, 11 that had been around. I did read Hardy Boys. I read some Nancy Drew, which were great, but I was looking for something a little more, a little less staid, maybe? That's what I do. I mean, I... I write the books, the kind of books I would have loved to read when I was young, you know, and, and, and when I found those, they were great, but back then, a long time ago, there just weren't that many of them, because there was the Hardy Boys, which were entertaining, and, and Nancy Drew was fine, but it was girls, and so, you know, I mean, as a fourth, third grader, I was like, eh, okay, but, but um, and then you get through those series, and then there was no backup, you know, publishing, as you know, changes, every two years about, I mean, some new trend comes in and, you know, vampires are hot, fantasy's hot, you know what I mean? And everything kind of changes. And and I always liked thrillers, adventures, and mysteries to read those. I mean, that was kind of my genre. And I tell kids, you know, they go, I don't know what to write. And I go, you should write the kind of book you like to read. What is What are the challenges of writing a series where you've written about these characters in a few books, and now you're writing them again. You got to make sure there's continuity there because you've got attentive readers. Well, you do, and for me, that's hard because I don't read my books again. 
Well, I do when I'm doing a series. So, I mean, I'll make sure that I remember what actually finally ended up in the book, you know, because you go through many edits and, you know, you have to kind of pick up the details and stuff. And um, series are kind of easier to write in that uh, I write character-driven stories. Well, I already have the characters. Does that make sense? So I don't have to spend weeks or months inventing these characters. I already know who they are. So in that sense, it's, it's easy. I do not like doing the um, backstory from the first book, but you have to do that just in case someone doesn't read number one and they're reading number two and they can know what's going on. And so inserting all that kind of stuff in the narrative, you just want to get on with the story, number two, but you, but you have to kind of go back and refer to what happened the adventure that happened in the first book a little bit and touch on it because you know you don't after book one you don't really have a series fan because there's only book one Mm -hmm. and then they read book two and they might check it out of their school library or whatever and not realize it's book two and that this is story first and you've really got to kind of help them along because they're obviously going to talk about the first adventure but in order to do that you need to sort of explain to the reader how that happens when I did you mentioned Cryptid Hunters in the first Cryptid Hunter books called Cryptid Hunters the the two main characters the boys are graphic novelists and I had talked to the publisher and said hey look here's what I want to do it would have been brilliant but anyway they 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 said I said you know I wrote Cryptid Hunters I want to write three more what I what I want to do is in the first part of book two which is Tentacles I want to do a graphic novel of the first book so that I, lazy me, doesn't have to try to insert all that junk into the narrative and we just pop right into the story. And um, we kind of got right down to it. And it was a few years back and they said, well, I don't know, you know, graphic novels are not popular, if you can believe that. You know, they they were just kind of getting, getting kind of started up, you know, and they said, well, uh, that's great, Roland. Can you draw? I go, no, I can't draw. You'd have to hire someone a lot more talented than me and, you know, have them summarize the story. I said, not the entire story, but I mean, just kind of a short kind of a thing. And then I can just hop into the thing. They didn't do it. They wouldn't do it. So again, I had to go through each of those books and then put in a bunch of stuff that I'd already written about and, and try to do it in a way where it kept the, the story moving. You work at a zoo. And I'm curious, what did you do while you were employed at a zoo? I started working at the Portland Zoo when I was 18 years old. I was just a kid, you know, trying to get money for college. And um, unbeknownst to me, I, I turned out to be really good with animals. And not in a Dr. Doolittle way, I was just sort of ignorant and not really afraid of them and read a lot of books about them and sort of figured things out. So when I was a kid, I was the guy that the older keepers were trying to get killed <laughs> pretty much you know they'd say well the bear's out and i go yeah and they go we want you to go in there and get the bear and i go okay you know i mean i say well how do how do you catch a bear they go we don't know so you go in and it's a black bear which is not a big deal and i figured out how to how to get it back in its cage and came out and they'd be out there with first aid equipment you know, this is the old-time zoos, and I'd come out, and I was a, kind of a street-smart kid, and they go, did you get the bear in? I go, I did. And they go, well, how'd you do it? And I go, I don't know. 
just like they said, and walk away. So I was that guy. I was really good with animals, I think. And um, oh, I was at the, I thought I'd stay at the zoo for about a year, but I ended up staying at the Portland Zoo for 10 years. And when I left, I was the senior feline keeper in charge of the lions and leopards and tigers, oh my. And I spent a lot of time working with wolves and other carnivores. Uh, then I went off and I became a curator of mammals and birds at a zoo in Tacoma, Washington, called the Point Defiant Zoo and Aquarium. And I came, became, I was the general curator, I was in charge of the zoological department. But what I did mostly at Point Defiant Zoo, I was their senior research biologist. And I started getting into reintroduction programs. And so I reintroduced the red wolf back into the wild. It was extinct. And so I was the species coordinator, stud bookkeeper for the United States. So when I was working at Point Defiant Zoo, I was the assistant director. And I was the worst assistant director ever because I was never there. I was always out in the field in the southeastern United States. And I'd fly in after being gone for months, and my director would pick me up and go, hey, you know, we're having this event tonight. Do you think you go get some cookies for the event? And I go, no. You know, he's a good friend. But he go, I knew that. So they actually hired another assistant director. So he had a real assistant director, and then he had, you know, kind of me, and, and I was pretty well-known because of the Wolf program and stuff like that. They liked having me there, even though I wasn't there very much. And... Uh, so I worked up with animals for over 20, 20 years, 22 years, something like that. I'm going to guess that when you're 18 or 28 or 38, you're not thinking these experiences will necessarily be in books. But then you read something like Elephant Run, and I don't think that could have been written necessarily if as perhaps as easily had you not worked with animals. No, not at all. I mean, the animals kind of gave me my career. I mean, I don't always write about animals, but oftentimes I do you know, put animals in here and there. And that's all based on my personal years of experience of working with those animals. And, and lucky that was a lucky thing for me, you know. I mean, so, yeah, it's, it's been a valuable deal. I mean, I wouldn't be able to write the Invasive Species book. I mean, I could have written it, meaning I could have looked everything up, like, you know, people who are not in the, not me do, and then put it down. And it, it's okay, it works, but... It's not quite as, there's some subtleties, I think, in, in having experience that you get to put into books that other people don't have the advantage of because they they aren't me. They didn't spend 20 years dealing with animal problems every single day, you know, and so that's one of the things, you know, I don't, I'm not that skilled, but I have real deep knowledge of that. You're a fan of history? I absolutely, yeah. And I wrote Elephant Run because I'm really interested in World War II, but I... Nobody had written Elephant Run, just to explain to the listeners, is a book that takes place during World War II in Burma, Southeast Asia, now called Myanmar. And during World War II, the Japanese took over Burma. It's a big, brutal story. And um, I'd written a book called Thunder Cave, which is about African elephants who I worked with in Africa and in captivity. And I also worked with Asian elephants, and I wanted to write an adventure novel about Asian elephants and so um, I went to Burma and spent a month in the forest with elephants working with them. And I wanted to write the, the Pacific theater for kids because most of the World War, there's lots of them for kids, are about the Nazis and, you know, that whole thing, the European. But it was, it was a world war. And if anything, well, 
you know, our war with Japan, that part of it started before the European war officially, and it was longer and actually more brutal. That's it, you know, that's based on experience. You know, I spent a month in the jungle with a bunch of Asian elephants, forest elephants, and I wrote a nonfiction book about that, but the nonfiction contract was actually, uh, I got it so I could go to Burma for a month. You know, they pay you advance, and I went there and did the research for the nonfiction book, took the photographs, wrote the nonfiction book, and then got to the real reason I wanted to go over there, which was to write Elephant Run. We talked about Dave Triffitt's. You saw it as a kid. It influenced you. Stayed with you through decades to the beginning of this book. Do you ever think about their kids who were, or other, you know, older people reading a book of yours that stays with them for a long time? I think, you know, I, I'm old enough now. I've been around a long time, been doing this for over 30 years. That I hear from uh, adults who read my books. It's very thrilling to hear that and say, you know, I, I still reread Peak and I'm 30 years old. And that really had a huge influence on me, and not only the story itself, but in but becoming a reader. And that's great. I mean, that's really why I do it. It's not the, the money or the recognition so much. It's that I'm really trying to create readers when I write a book, like I am. And I, and, and, uh, I think everything good that's ever happened to me was because of books or a book or, or being a reader. And I still read. I read two or three books every week. I've done that for over 60 years. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. It was great. Roland Smith is the author of dozens of books for young readers, including the recently published nonfiction book about invasive species, They Are Here. I spoke with him earlier this year at the Bentonville Public Library before he delivered a public talk there. Much more about him and his books can be found at rolandsmith.com. And if you know a young reader, or you were of a certain age and were once a young reader, you probably know the name R.L. Stein, the creator of the Fear Street and Goosebumps series. Earlier this fall, he spoke at the Fayetteville Public Library. I sat down and talked with him for a public conversation, and before that public conversation, we met up on Zoom. That conversation just ahead on this edition of Ozarks at Large. This is Ozarks at Large. Happy almost New Year. Thanks for being with us this hour. We're spending some time with a few of our favorite conversations that we aired earlier this year on the program. Still to come this hour, this year, Tricia Starks, professor of history at the University of Arkansas, was shortlisted for the Pushkin House Russian Book Prize for her most recent book, Cigarettes and Soviets, Smoking in the USSR. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth talked with her this spring, and we'll share that conversation again ahead. R.L. Stein's readership stretches across generations and countries. His Fear Street and Goosebump series have sold an estimated 480 million copies 
in more than 35 languages. And he's beloved, often serving as a guide for young readers into the world of books. R.L. Stein was at the Fayetteville Public Library on October 28th this year. It was the conclusion to the most recent edition of the library's True Lit Fest. I reached him earlier in October by Zoom and asked him about a notable endeavor of his that took place before he launched Fear Street and Goosebumps. It was a humor magazine called Bananas, published by Scholastic Books. His byline then was jovial Bob Stein. Hey, that was my life's dream, to have my own humor magazine. I did it for 10 years. Yeah. And then when it was over, I thought I would just coast the rest of my life. How'd that work out? <laughs> <laughs> and then I had no idea what was happening. What Bananas did for me when I was 12, 13, 14 years old was I didn't think it was – I didn't consciously think about the people who wrote it, what their age was, because it just connected with me. And I uh -huh. think that's something that happened with Goosebumps as well, is what younger people have told me, that there was just this instant connection, no sort of writing down to us. You got us. Yeah, well, I actually like kids. <laughs> I'm not, you know, a lot of children's authors don't like kids, but I actually do. You know, I have a kid, I have grandkids. I actually like kids, <laughs> and that's, but that is sort of my trick is just you know being able to speak to them. It's partly because you know I don't try to teach them anything. <laughs> they don't learn anything in goosebumps. There, you learn nothing. Maybe you'll learn to run. But we're entertained. Yeah, well, that's the whole point. You know, there used to be a rule in children's publishing that in every book, the characters had to learn and grow. I always said, and I always thought, why? Why do they have to learn and grow? Because, yeah, you know, like adults are allowed to read all kinds of trash, right? Adults can read anything. We don't, we don't read stuff where people have to learn and grow. Why should kids have to read that? Yeah. And so I, with Goosebumps, I, I want them to be just entertainment. There are no morals to learn. There's nothing inspiring about them. They're just entertainment to read. And show you, you can go away from your iPad screen, you can go away from your computer and pick up a book and be just as entertained. And they're not, you know, the books aren't challenging at all. There's no hard vocabulary words. The chapters are short. They're easy to read. When, when I was a kid, I also loved, you know, uh, I would get reprints of creepy and eerie magazines from EC Comics. Oh, yeah, me too. Me too. And and I it started a love affair for me for for things that were scary. And you say that was the same for you? Yeah, I'm older than you. I remember when I was a kid, there was Tales from the Crypt and the Vault of Horror and the Witch's Cauldron, all those great old EC horror comics. They were very influential on me. I loved them when I was a kid. They all had such gruesome, horrible stories. And then every story had a funny twist ending. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the, of course, you'll remember those were controversial. We had congressional hearings and the needed yeah, a comics code. You know, there a lot of people don't like kids and they want to take things away from kids all the time. And that's what happens. Oh, the kids like those comics. Take them away from. Them. Oh, they're, they're video games. They're too violent. Take away their games. Oh, take away their music. People always want to punish kids, you know, for being kids. Because they think they know better. 
because they're jealous. <laughs> right? Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. But it sounds like you and I had similar parents in that they weren't that way. I remember my mom would have a Harold Robbins novel, and if she she had no problem with me picking up, you know, famous monsters of Filmland as a magazine. Oh no, my mother was not like that. Oh. I one day I bought two copies of uh, Tales from the Crypt, and she stopped me at the door and she said, "I'm sorry, you can't have these. You can't bring them in the house. They're trash." See, my mother was not like that. I had to go to the barber shop to read them. They had a big stack of them. And this is true, Kyle. Every Saturday morning, I'd go get a haircut. So I, I had less hair when I was a kid than I do now. <laughs> so I could go I could go read these comic books every Saturday, off to the barber shop. <laughs> well, don't you imagine there were young readers whose parents said no to goosebumps, and they would have to do oh, I similar. Hear from them. Yeah. I hear from them. You know, and then I hear from a lot of kids who had to like sneak them. They read them late at night under the covers with a flashlight. You know, they'd have to sneak them. <laughs> there was trouble, you know, in the beginning when Goosebumps first came out back in the 90s. Nobody had ever done a horror series for seven to 11 year olds before. So there was controversy about it. And of course, the covers were much scarier than the books. <laughs> right. So that caused, that caused a lot of trouble, too. When, when I, I've read that it was pitched to you because you'd had such success with young adult novels that, okay, Fear what about... Street. Yeah, yeah, Fear Street. Let's, let's have you write for a younger age. Did you embrace that idea right away? No. I, this, this is the kind of businessman I am. I didn't want to do goosebumps. <laughs> Brilliant, right? I thought it would mess up the Fear Street audience, the older audience. I thought they would be upset that, you know, I was writing for younger kids. And I I was very reluctant. They kept after me and kept after me. They wanted to try the series. And I said, all right, finally. I said, let's try two or three of them. Now it's 31 years later. <laughs> and and did you have to think a little bit differently for the scares for a younger reader? Well, yeah. You know, we in Fear Street, we kill off teenagers every book. People love that. <laughs> they love it when you kill teenagers. <laughs> Why is that? Why do people enjoy that so much? You know, the three Fear Street movies on Netflix? Uh-huh. Like slasher films. <laughs> you know, teenagers getting slashed to pieces. They love those. They were all number one movies on Netflix. I loved it. But I, you know, I didn't want to do it. Seven to 11 year olds, I'm not going to have people die in goosebumps. <laughs> Nobody ever dies in goosebumps. I had to be, you know, I had to find um, this mix of horror and humor. I wanted it to be, you know, a lot funny, a lot funny. I, I, I needed to, if, if a scene would ever get too intense, I would throw in something funny and lighten it up. And that's pretty much what I do. You know, and I think back to the classic universal horror movies, and they would have those elements, too. Yes. Yes. That you need and to... And all the horror films, you know, I was a kid in the 50s, and uh, my I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, a suburb. And their little movie theater, every Saturday morning, would have a Tom and Jerry cartoon festival, and then they'd show a horror film. 
So I saw all the great horror films from back then, the, the brain that wouldn't die, <laughs> walks among us, the creature from the Black Lagoon, um, all of them. And, and I, you just loved them. They were very influential as well. One thing those movies did, just, you know, and it's a wide range of quality, but one thing those successful ones did, no matter the budget, was establish a great atmosphere. you got to have this great atmosphere, right? Shadow. Um, you know, black and white movies, all the universal films you were talking about, the shadows were as important as what was going on. Exactly. There's a new channel that Amazon has launched called the Universal Movie Channel, and I've been watching it. And there's I didn't a, know that. Yeah, they just started. Uh, it, it's part of this Freebie um, collection. Yeah, yeah, so it, yeah, I didn't know. Yeah, it just started a couple weeks ago. And um, I was watching the other day. And there's this, uh, it was a 32 Universal, I think it was Universal, um, version of Island of Dr. Moreau called Island of Lost. That's my favorite horror film. Island of Lost Souls? Yeah. What are you saying? That's my favorite film. It is, you know, whatever, 80 years later, it's still chilling as can be. And part of it is that atmosphere. You know, when it came out in 1933... This is true. It was so terrifying to audiences that people threw up in their seats. Yes. That's how scary it was <laughs> to them. And it's still so creepy. All those mutant characters that Dr. Moreau creates. Charles Lawton is is brilliant. Yes. And Bella Lugosi is in it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So it I is, can't believe you brought that up. Nobody ever mentions that movie except me. Oh, it's 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 frightening still now. Yes, I know. So, oh, well, this is great because I was watching this and just amazed at the atmosphere that was created. And do you think like that for the written word, you want to create the right atmosphere? Yeah, I do. I, but I want it to actually not to be real. At, I want it to be normal. Mm. Everything in Goosebumps has to be normal. It starts off, it doesn't take place in a castle in middle Europe. Every Goosebumps book takes place, in, sort of like Spielberg, in somebody's backyard. It starts off in the kitchen, in the backyard, so kids can relate to it right away. Yeah. So that's yeah. more important to me, to have it normal. The kids in Goosebumps are not special in any way. They're all normal kids facing these horrible monsters, facing these incredible dilemmas that they have to solve on their own because their parents are useless. Exactly. (laughs) Parents are all useless. Either they don't believe the kid or they're not there. And I think that can be empowering as a young reader. Like, oh, at some point I've got to go out and i got to do this myself. Yeah, that's the whole, that's the only thing in Goosebumps that's, you know, the only moral lesson. You have to use your own wits and get yourself out of the jam. There must be ideas going on with you all the time. One idea at a time. One idea at a time. I always laugh about these authors, you know, they give advice and they say, keep a notebook with you. And as soon as you have an idea, write it down. Keep a notebook full of ideas. You don't need a notebook full of ideas. You need one. <laughs> you need one idea. Then you write it. Then you get one more idea. I'm going to keep a notebook of ideas. 
especially now, right? Yeah. Yeah, I've written every story a human can write. So I I need one idea. But I do think, here's what, I think about titles all the time. I'm always looking, because every book I write starts with the title. I have to have the title first. And so I'll hear something on the street, or I'll see something, I'll see a movie or something, and a title pop into my head. That I try to remember. Gotcha. That that that's what I'm always. I don't really try to think of ideas. I just try to think of titles now. I love that. Um, we. I can tell you that it is going to be a packed house. So many people are anxious to be there. Thank you so much for some time. And I'm happy to meet somebody else that understands the magnificence of Island of Lost Souls. Me too. You're the first. That's so so great. <laughs> Well, well, we should have we should have lunch. I think so. Well, I will see yeah. you when you are here in Fayetteville, and thank you so oh, much nice. for nice. All right, nice. Thank you very much. All right, all right. Bye bye. R. L. Stein, creator of the Fear Street and Goosebumps series of books, talking with me in October via Zoom. He was at the Fayetteville Public Library on the evening of October twenty seventh. This is what we said on our show a few days before that appearance. This event is free, and seating is first come, first served, with capacity at a little over 600. Well, that capacity was met, and it was met early. Fans of R.L. Stein began lining up hours before I sat down with him on the library stage. It was the most attended event in the history of the Fayetteville Public Library, and R.L. Stein, I can report, was engaging, generous with his time, and funny for the entire evening. And thank you. Fayetteville Public Library for including KUAF and me in that night. This is Ozarks at Large. KUAF's Daily Word Game is a five-letter puzzle available to play right now, as in T-O-D-A-Y. Ugh, okay. You might get the word if you listen to the Ozarks at Large A-U-D-I-O. Okay, okay. Maybe it's because I forgot to remind you that you can play the game at kuaf.com or by subscribing to the Ozarks at Large newsletter that shows up in your email, I-N-B-O-X. Well, maybe you'll have better luck than me. Go try your luck today. This is Ozarks at Large. We're re-airing some of our favorite conversations from 2023 editions of Ozarks at Large this hour. You can find others by going to our website, ozarksatlarge.com. You can also listen to each of our daily editions of the program on your schedule by taking advantage of the Ozarks at Large podcast. It's free, and it's available on all platforms. And you can listen with your smart speaker. Just ask it to please play Ozarks at Large, and you'll hear the most recent daily episode of our show. This year, Tricia Starks, professor of history at the University of Arkansas, was shortlisted for the Pushkin House Russian Book Prize for her most recent book, Cigarettes and Soviets, Smoking in the USSR. She joined Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth in May to discuss her work, the significance of studying Russia today, and what Americans get wrong about Russia. Well, thanks so much for talking with me today, Trish. Um, can you just sort of walk me through? I know that this is kind of like the latest in a lot of recent scholarship that you've done mm-hmm. on smoking in Russia and in the USSR. And so can you tell me just a little bit about this book and why you wanted to write it? 
Thank you for having me, and thank you for that question. Uh, I first found out about the Soviet anti-smoking campaign when I was researching their public health programs for my first book. In 1918, the Soviets found the first national health care system in the world devoted to prophylactic, unified, universal care. And it's dogged by problems financially, dogged by problems of personnel, yet is able to double lifespans in a little over 20, 30 years. It's an impressive achievement. And as part of that, they also had, shockingly, the world's first national anti-smoking campaign with the first state-funded cessation clinics starting in 1920 and progressing onward from there. And I was shocked to find that out because they are also, you might not know, but uh, if anyone who has been there knows, inveterate, devoted smokers today. And so I was fascinated with how we could have this state with a strong public health tradition, a early start on cessation work, and yet still be facing this horrific health blow. And so what is it about about tobacco and about smoking uh, in this period and during the USSR, during that era, but then also, you know, today still? Tobacco is highly addictive. Uh, Out of every three users, one will become a lifelong user. And out of those people that are lifelong users, quitting is incredibly difficult. And so we have to first give a nod to the fact that it's just an incredibly addictive substance. But... If we look at the Soviets, we're faced with some really weird questions because most of our understandings of tobacco addiction in the West are based upon this idea of, well, what one historian, David Cartwright, has called limbic capitalism, the way that marketers and industry are able to enslave our desires and our biological desires towards addictive substances. And so they concentrate on marketing, on supply, on industrial design, all of these things as being the essentials of why you do tobacco. It doesn't work in the Soviet Union. Soviets in 1917 say no to capitalism, uh, say that advertising is a diseased excrescence (laughs) of capitalism. They really turn a different way that should have nipped tobacco use in the bud. Alongside this public health campaign, we have an anti-capitalist campaign. So how do you have anti-tobacco and anti-capitalist still result in tobacco use. My book traces that through a variety of things, through distrust of the medical system, through disinterest in public health propaganda, to try and understand the Soviet experience and how addiction develops there. I'm wondering for you, why did you get interested in, well, A, in smoking, but then <laughs> and also in, uh, in studying that, and then Russia as well? Like, why are those two things something that you said, I want to look into both of these. (laughs) Well, Russia was already a a given, and public health was my first 
endeavor into trying to understand how the Soviets lived differently. I first traveled to the Soviet Union in 1990-91 as a student, and I became fascinated with how the Soviet system functioned and how people lived it. It was so very alien, including this ubiquitous anti-smoking, pro-health propaganda that everyone just blithely ignored. Mm -hmm. Smoking in front of the no smoking signs was a, (laughs) a daily occurrence. The smoking just really became the most focused point for that why doesn't the system work question. What are the things that are really making it gum up. And I think even today, I mean, definitely over the past couple of months, the past year, uh, I think people have become more focused on Russia. But I think it's still mysterious to a lot of us. What do people get wrong about Russia and the Soviet Union? What, What do we not understand? From my research perspective, which is on health, one of the things that people don't understand is how effective Putin has been in public health measures. Instituted in 2012, there have been anti-alcohol and anti-tobacco measures that have curtailed sales, access, places where one can smoke and one can drink that have severely affected how much people are smoking and drinking. Indeed, they claimed that alcohol was down by 80% in use and smoking down by about 20%. And these things have immense effects on public health, which is a weird thing for the Soviets and then the Russians that they're the first major nation to show a decline in public health factors in the 1960s. By the 1990s, the average age of death for a Russian male plummets into the 57 years. And Putin has clawed back from that and is connected with that renewed health of individuals alongside the renewed health of the state. In 1991, Russia had a population of about 149 million. By 2050, demographers are projecting that will go down to 75 to 80 million. Mm. So severe constriction of the population alongside these horrible public health indicators to see improvement on that in concrete. um, Average age of death has risen to mid-70s. That's impressive, Mm -hmm. and that is something that we don't often see discussed in why is Putin so popular or, you know, is he even that popular? There are uh, things that prop him up, and I say health is one of the biggest ones. And it's interesting because a lot of this book was about, you know, uh, there were pieces about gender roles and and how smoking sort of propped up very demarcated gender roles. Mm -hmm. And I know that for Vladimir Putin, masculinity and gender ideology, that's very distinct in his kind of public Mm -hmm. health message as well. Can you talk about that some? Yes, manly is a a definite um, baseline for health um, in Putin's Russia. There's a disturbing song out there uh, that was very popular in the early aughts called Tokovatak Putin. I want a man like Putin who doesn't smoke, who doesn't drink. I want a man like Putin who doesn't beat. It goes on, but his abstemious behavior, he doesn't smoke, he only drinks beer. 
those things really are part of his image of a new masculinity that's not connected to smoking, that's not connected to drinking, uh, that has this newer vision of what Russian masculinity can be, and it is embedded in a story of healthful habits. And can you talk a little bit about, um, I guess, the research and, and kind of the writing process for this book and, and what that was like? Because I assume you were in Russia for, for much of it. So I was finishing up research on my first book when I found references to this early anti-tobacco campaign because it's really not talked about. There's a, a small note in the Commissar of Health's memoirs about it. I found the actual documents of it in a five-inch thick binder of just random pieces of notes that had been jammed together of all different sizes. And because there's a paper shortage in the Soviet Union in the 1920s, sometimes there were notes written over the top of notes and on the back of notes. And the paper was all different kinds of paper. It was a mess. But finding that was a great, uh, great experience. But actually, the most fun I had while researching this was when I was getting a chance to look through the visual archives at the Russian State Library. So there are about 60 illustrations in the book, many of them in color. And while I was in the archive at the Russian State Library, the finding of these visuals was a communal experience. The archivists would stand around, four or five of them, alongside me as I looked at these visuals, not because they were keeping oversight on me to make sure I was... They just wanted to look. And so each time a new visual, we'd, we'd turn the page and pick up a new poster, and there would be these, ooh, ah, oh, look at that. Just a very... Um, it was a lot of fun. It was a more calm time internationally, yeah. and so they were putting together materials for international exhibitions of posters, and so I got to see these posters, not just of the tobacco materials that I was looking at, but also posters from 1917, 1918 wow. by truly Im- Im- immensely great artists in their originals, and five foot by ten foot, just massive posters, an amazing experience overall. Wow. Thinking back to that and where we are now with the war in Ukraine, I assume you you were not able to go to Russia at the moment. How is it to be someone whose work is, you know, rooted in this this place that now you and so many other scholars and people who you probably know who work on this are, are banned from and you don't really know maybe when the next time you would be able to go is? First and foremost, it, it is devastating to look at what is happening at you in Ukraine and to so many places that I have been and to so many people who are being um, victimized mm-hmm. and and um, terrorized by this, this war. I have come to the realization that I probably won't be able to get back to Russia. Yeah. Um, and that I have seen my last of places that I truly love to be in Moscow, in St. Petersburg, and to see people and scholars whom I respect and who have taught me so much and supported me in the past. And where have you seen, I guess, as people have focused more um, there's been renewed interest and in, in maybe like a necessity to, mm-hmm. to study. Um, the Soviet Union and Russia 
Where have you seen that scholarship going? And maybe why is it important? Well, the biggest thing that we're seeing, I would say, as a field is an emphasis on different storylines. And so we're seeing a splintering of narratives, a faceting of narratives that I think informs us more of how the state functioned when it was an empire, but also the thing that fascinates me, dysfunction. Uh, And so I think we're getting to see much better through this emphasis on the interaction between different regions, different nations within the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire. So I do want to talk about your book has been shortlisted for the Pushkin Prize. Um, yes. Can you tell me just a little bit about this, you know, what that means to you and um, how it's been? So the, the Pushkin Prize, it comes from the Pushkin House in London, which has been around for decades. The prize itself was established in 2013 to acknowledge the best writing on Russian events on Russian literature and history. And so to be included in that for writing is is exceedingly sweet. It has been lovely, um, lovely to be recognized in this way. The ceremony itself will take place in London on June 15th. And so I am setting out to go there. I'm going to give a talk beforehand on June 12th, then uh, be there for the ceremony. I don't know how that will go. There are six of us on the short list, and it's a 10,000-pound prize. Wow. I know. They say there's no money in history. I, 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 Proof <laughs> otherwise, and a trip to London. <laughs> Jet-setting lifestyle. That's right. <laughs> uh, and so that's, it's exceedingly exciting. I am astonished to be on a list with such incredible work in a year that was big for publishing on yeah. Russia. There were a lot of books about <laughs> Russia this year. And so to be singled out it was unexpected. Thank you, Trish Starks, for talking with me. The name of the book is uh, Cigarettes and Soviets. Smoking in the USSR. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. That was University of Arkansas history professor Trisha Starks speaking with Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth. Her book, Cigarettes and Soviets, Smoking in the USSR, is nominated for the 2023 Pushkin Prize. That interview first aired on Ozarks at Large this past May. And Daniel Carruth produces his work for Ozarks at Large inside the Karen Taha News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio. Tomorrow on Ozarks, we'll continue our tour through our recent past with more of the interviews we had on our show in 2023. Rob Wells will discuss his new book about the life and career of William Kiplinger. Kiplinger's circles included some of the most important policymakers in the United States in the first half of the 20th century. His new book shows that Kiplinger was also a visionary journalist. As a uh, as a Washington reporter, he was 
highly expert in the intersection of finance and politics. Rob Wells will again talk with us about his new book, The Insider, How the Kiplinger Newsletter Bridges Washington and Wall Street, on tomorrow's show. Plus, also help with the last stages of life. What I have found with end-of-life doulas is that there's a serv- there's a heart of service. And so, yeah, maybe it's just I want to have a conversation about what is it that I need to do? What are the questions I need to ask? Um, so, you know, sometimes those are complementary. Sometimes it, there is a cost to it. Um, but I feel like that initial conversation oftentimes is enough to say maybe I don't need one right now, but maybe one in the future. A conversation with an end-of-life doula and more on our show tomorrow. Undisciplined is a collaboration between the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas and KUAF. The podcast provides a holistic understanding of complex issues that affect our interconnected world. Taking the interdisciplinary approach of African and African American Studies to the classroom, into the community, onto the airwaves, and beyond. I am your host, Dr. Karee Banton. And for this fifth season, I have a new co-host, Nenebi Tony. The podcast is produced by Leah Grant. And is available every Wednesday at KUAF.com, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the African and African American Studies program and the Undisciplined podcast on Instagram at UARK underscore AAST or visit KUAF.com to listen to all episodes. Ozarks at Large is a production, 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. And KUAF Fayetteville is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. You can find out more about us at ozarksatlarge.com or at KUAF.com. Back with you tomorrow for another show that highlights some of our favorite conversations and pieces from the previous year. I'm Kyle Kellums. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Lee Wood is KUAF's general manager. Jasper Logan is our director of community engagement. Pete Hartman is our operations manager. Thanks so much for being with us. Have a great rest of your Wednesday. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season at Walton Arts Center Saturday, January 20th with The Great Unknown. Performing the world premiere of Aldo Lopez Gavilan's Oceans to Cross, featuring nationally acclaimed pianist Laura Downs. The evening's program will also include Samuel Barber's Symphony No. 1 and William Dawson's Negro Folk Symphony. Tickets and more at sonamusic.org. The University of Arkansas Department of Political Science offers political science and public administration and nonprofit studies graduate programs. Both programs train the next generation of local, state, national, and global leaders in the public, nonprofit, and private sectors. Applications for fall 2024 and graduate assistantships are available for qualified applicants. plsc.uark.edu for more information.